All right, uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Micah. So we're going to start a book that many of you um, maybe not familiar with. Uh, to be honest, it's not a book that I'm very familiar with. So we're both going to, we're all going to come together and learning about what God, uh, why he put the book Micah in there. It's one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean it's less important. It just means it's shorter. So if you're using one of the blue Bibles, it'll be on page 776. Couple of things about Micah and his book. First thing is that Micah was a prophet around the time of Isaiah. And in fact, Micah gets quoted in the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 26. At the beginning of the book of Micah, as we'll see in a second, there's a list of kings that were the kings when he was a prophet. Micah's name, in some ways, helps us to understand the big themes of the book. Roughly translated, Micah's Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh, or who is like the Lord? Or perhaps to spell that out a little more clearly, who is a God like the Lord? Because the question is important because Micah, again looking big picture at the whole book, shows us both the judgment of the Lord, the justice of the Lord, but also the hope of the Lord the hope that God's people have in him. And in one sense, what you're going to see as we take seven weeks through the seven chapters of Micah is almost an alternating pattern. So one chapter will focus on the judgment and justice of God, and then the next chapter will focus on the hope that is found in God. So there will be some sermons where you're like, yes, 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 but, and I'll say to you next week, There are a couple familiar passages in the book of Micah. So in Micah chapter 5, we know from the Christmas story, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are least among the clans of Judah, that's in the book of Micah. And also the more familiar verse, Micah 6, 8. Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So you know parts of Micah, but it's probably been a while since you read through the whole thing. So today, as we look at the first chapter of Micah, we are going to be introduced to a God like no other. A God who has no comparison, but a God of justice and a God of power and might and judgment. If you're following along in the outline provided in your bullets, and we're going to see this big idea that God has called us to repent, knowing that his judgment of sin will happen. So let's jump right into the book of Micah. First thing we're going to see, point one there in your outline, is that the judge is here. Looking at Micah, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to see the time and place of Micah. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, 
Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. First thing we need to see that what is here is a word from the Lord. In thinking about the prophets, in thinking about this group of people in the Bible who were called prophets, one of the ways to think about this is that the prophets are God relating to us. They are speaking on behalf of God to us. Whereas the Psalms is often how do we relate to God. The prophets are how does God relate to us. And it's a good reminder that what is here is not just the words of Micah. But God is sharing with God's people the very words of God. Telling us that Micah was in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah again tells us where in history this did in fact happen. And lastly, I want to point out, it says, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Let me quickly explain why that is there. After Solomon, the people of Israel split into two kingdoms. Okay, so Israel was a unified kingdom under three guys, Saul, David, and Solomon. And after Solomon, it was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, sometimes referred into your Bible as Israel and Judah. Other times, the Bible uses the capital cities of those countries to refer to them. And so the capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and the capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. So that's what that means. And again, when we use those together, we see that this is a judgment, this is a word of the Lord to all of God's people. But let's look at what God is saying through Micah. Let's start with Verses 2 through 4, and this picture of God coming down in righteous judgment. This is a powerful picture, and there's metaphorical language used here. Don't miss that. Uh, But I want us to see a picture of God, and maybe a picture of God that will help us grow our understanding of God. So I'm going to start reading in verse 2, going through verse 4. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. In verse 2, we see Micah calling the people to listen, calling us to listen to what God is saying through his prophet. And not just to us, but all of the earth. God is the king of the whole earth, and therefore all people must listen to what he has to say. And we see the first metaphor in Micah of let the Lord God be a witness against you. The language of being in a court. That God has seen what we have done, all of us. And that there is a standard, just as there is a standard of justice in a human court. 
And in one sense, we're in big trouble because we don't just have any eyewitness who might get stuff wrong or a witness who doesn't know what he's talking about. We have the Lord God as a witness against us. The picture of God continues. And the picture is of God seated in his throne in all of his glory. And he's coming down to earth. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, the hills and the mountains are little piles of dirt compared to God. And in fact, as he comes down, the mountains will melt. Now, Dave, on the slides there, I have a, on the last slide, I have a picture. Would you go down to that for me? One of the things about living in our community is we, we get to be around mountains. This is, anybody know? That's Baker, yep. From Penn Cove, you recognize it because there's that little patch of green and that, that juts out there. We're really far away from that, and it's still big. <laughs> when we're outside, and again, this is a blessing of living in our community here, we get to understand the immensity of mountains. On Friday, I was down at Double Bluff, and it was probably the clearest day I've ever seen, and Rainier was huge. And when we look at the mountains, when we who get to drive by mountains every single day and understand even though they are so far away, they are still immense and huge. And you think of back then in the ancient world where there's no skyscrapers, there's no man-made giant structures that can compare to the mountains. If you're thinking of things that are big and set and set in stone, mountains And when God comes down, the mountains melt. Look what he says in verse 4. Like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. The mountains are liquefied. This is our God. The God who melts mountains. This is the God who stands in judgment over sin and evil. This is a God of justice. And not only does he live justly, not only is, is he of a character of justice, but in his power he will bring about justice. Because if he can melt a mountain, nothing can stand in his way. There is no power today, even with all of our technology, that can melt an entire mountain and turn it into liquid. And this is our God. But why is he coming down? Why is God demonstrating his power? 
And we see in verses 5 to 7 that he is demonstrating his power in this way because of judgment on sin. Let's read verses 5 to 7. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. God, in his holiness, in his righteousness, and his justice, must judge sin and wickedness. He comes down in power. He is a witness against us because of the sin committed. You see in verse 5 the repetition there of the transgression of Jacob, the sins of the house of Israel, the transgression of Jacob, the high places in Judah. Sometimes in your Bibles, when you see high places, the reference there is not just to a place that was elevated, but what you did if you were a pagan in the ancient world is if you wanted to worship your God, you wanted to get close enough so that you had good reception. And so you'd always worship on the high places. It's like, can you hear me now with your cell phone? But that's how pagan worship works. And when they're talking about high places, they're talking about worshiping false gods. That's confirmed later in verse 7 where it talks about the carved images and the idols. Broadly speaking, the sins of both Judah and Samaria, of Judah and Israel, of all of Israel, is that they have turned away from God to idols. Now, we know historically, sometimes this was adding idols or using idols to worship God, but they have perverted the true worship of the true God. Therefore, judgment is coming. They have turned away from the true God of the universe and therefore, judgment is coming. Look at verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. Samaria is a large city. Now, if you're going to plant vineyards where a city was, the city needs to be completely gone. And that's the picture of total judgment against this city so that you can plant grapes. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Total, complete, powerful judgment. Because of the idolatry, because of the carved images.
Now at the end of verse 7 it says, For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Why use that graphic language? Well, one reason is that one theme that runs throughout your Bible is that when God's people worship other gods, the language that is used is that of adultery and sexual promiscuity. And it's talked about, again, this is something that runs throughout your Bible, that in a sense, God's people are prostituting themselves to the foreign gods. It is an image that, while graphic, I think is helpful in a few ways. Number one, it helps us to understand the gravity of our sin. As we read this first chapter, we need to see the greatness of God, the glory of God, the bigness of God, but we also need to see the depth and depravity of our sin. And if we talk about, see, we're really good at at explaining away our sin. We're really good at downplaying just how bad we are, because we know what we're not as bad as them. That person over there, I'm, at least I'm better than them. So when we talk about this metaphor of committing adultery against God, it taps into that emotive side of us that helps us better understand the depth of our sin against God. This also ties into, historically, the worship that the pagan gods required that Israel had adopted into their worship. You worship a fertility god like Baal, like Asherah. You should recognize those names from your Old Testament. You worship a fertility god by going to a temple prostitute. If you have more questions about this, I'd love to talk more with you at another time. But I want us to see is that God's people have committed spiritual adultery against the holy God of the universe. And they've turned away from him and turned to worthless idols and carved images. And because of that, they come under the judgment of God. So what's our response to this judgment? What response do we do to the imminent judgment of God on sin? Because thankfully Micah doesn't leave the people of Israel and just saying, judgment's coming. In verses 8 to 16... He helps them better understand the judgment and their response to the judgment. So let's start by looking at verses 8 to 9. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. 
One of the things that Micah helps us to understand here is to better understand repentance. Again, he starts with a big picture of God and his holiness and his justice and moves us to an understanding of our sin in relation to that holy God. And then he moves us to what should we do and the first step of repentance, the first step of coming back to the God who created us, under whose judgment we stand, is to mourn and lament our sin. Do you see how it's connected? If, if God is not holy and just, then our sin doesn't really matter. And if our sin doesn't really matter, then we don't really need to repent because, you know, it's not that bad. But if God is this picture of power and holiness, then our sin is that bad, and therefore when we repent, we must mourn that sin. Micah is using what we might call the mourning rituals of that time period. I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. So when you see in the other parts of the Bible where it talks about someone putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes, it's very similar. It's this way of our outward appearance matches our hearts. I will like make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Now, I've never heard an ostrich, so I'm just going to have to take what the scholars say about this is true. But here's a picture his mourning is so great, it's almost subhuman. It's almost animalistic in its expression. That he's mimicking the animal world to express the mourning that he has over his sin. When was the last time we mourned over our sin? When was the last time we really felt the depth of our sin? Micah is pointing us to that because if sin is, if sin is not that bad, and it doesn't need to be mourned, then why do we need Jesus? Why do we need Jesus to die and rise again unless our sin really is that bad? Micah in verse 9 says, For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah, it has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Speaking of the judgment against unrepentant sin, he's calling them to repent. Historically, we know that this happened in 701 BC when an Assyrian king named Sennacherib, I don't recommend this for babies' names, but his name is Sennacherib. He was an Assyrian king, and in 701, he invaded the northern kingdoms and made it to the gate of Jerusalem. And apart from the grace of God, he would have overtaken Jerusalem. And so we know historically 
that the discipline and judgment promised here happened. So that's another thing we need to see from this text is the reality of judgment. That God will judge sin because he is holy and he is good. And that leads to the next part of verses 8 to 16. And this, verses 10 to 15, as scholars call it, a song of lament. A song of mourning. Now, a couple of things we need to understand as we read this. First of all, there are some, what we might call word puns in this, where the name of the city relates to the judgment that's going to come upon it. So let me give you an English example. It would be like us saying, Washington will be washed away. Okay, that's what's happening here in the original Hebrew. It's meant to highlight and both make it memorable that this is God's pronouncement of judgment to the original audience. And what we need to see here is the impending judgment that is coming. So I'm going to read through verses uh, 10 to 15. And again, see the repeated idea of judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment will come. Verse 10, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth, Laafra, roll yourself in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Saphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marot wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel." Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moreshet Gath. The house of Agzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. As Micah writes... And again, I want us to wait in this tension. Because yes, there is hope in God, but to understand that hope, we need to understand judgment. That judgment is coming. He Notice he doesn't even say try to get away from it. Because the idea is it's coming. And if it's coming from the God described in the earlier verses, there's nothing you can do. Sometimes, while we might be able to answer a Sunday school quiz about will God judge sin, sometimes we get the right answer in our brains, but we don't act out that truth in our lives. If God is the holy God of the universe, he must, if he is good, judge sin. 
And we must understand that first to understand the good news of Jesus. In verse 16, Micah closes up this section. And he says, Make yourself bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Exile is a theme that runs throughout your Bible of as discipline and judgment against God's people, he takes them out of the land. We know that the Assyrians did this to the northern kingdoms in 722 B.C. And we know for a while that the Babylonians came and did it to Judah, the southern kingdom, in about 586 B.C. It was a way to demonstrate to the people that they had sinned, and there were consequences to that sin. But in verse 16, those in our congregation who are bald, but here, bald, to make yourself bald is a way to show mourning. It's a way to lament. To intentionally make yourself bald is a way to show weeping and mourning and repentance. This is the proper response to discipline and judgment from God. It's not the only response. But Micah is leading us to Jesus. We're not there yet. We'll get there. But we need to first understand this. God is a holy God. He is the omnipotent God of the universe and we have sinned against him and therefore our sin is serious. And our sin must be mourned. And we must lament that sin. That is the first step of repentance. Let me read to you a quote from a commentator on the book of Micah. It is a little surprising that Micah does not focus on Judah's sin in this lament. This is perhaps because he simply wants people to sense the tragedy that lies ahead. If they can feel the pain and start to wail, they will almost automatically be moved to ask Micah or God why this is happening and will want to ask God to stop it. When they are ready to plead for God to act on their behalf, then Micah can give the answer to their questions and lead them to the next step. Think of chapter 1 as the first step. To recognize that God is God and is the only true God, and that we must repent and mourn our sins against him, or face his righteous judgment. Let me conclude with three quick applications for us today. How do I take this? How do I take God melting mountains? How do I take this lament, which is very foreign to our modern sensibilities? How do I apply this to my everyday life? First one is this. We need to both understand and live out that God will bring judgment on sin. 
It's a judgment that no one can escape. And sometimes I think with our modern sensibilities, we want to sort of explain these parts of the Bible away. But it's, it's a fact. It's not a fact that we're happy about, but it is a fact. Secondly, we need to respond to this judgment on sin with repentance. We need to mourn our sin. We need to understand the depth of our sin. Because we can't understand the greatness of Jesus without understanding the depth of our sin. Again, part of our problem is that we view sin too lightly. And when we get this picture of the power and the holiness of God, we can better understand our sin and therefore better understand our salvation in Christ. And then thirdly, we respond to judgment in compassionate evangelism for those who will experience it apart from repentance. This is one of the ways where we can agree that this is in the Bible, but where we don't live out this truth in our lives. Where we're sort of functionally opposed to the idea of judgment. But if, if this is true, if judgment really does come on those who have not repented of their sin, if we're not sharing this message, we either don't really believe in the judgment or we don't care that people will come under judgment. I've used this phrase before and I think it's really appropriate here. That if you really believe something, it'll change how you live. If I really believe in gravity, I'm not going to jump off the roof thinking I can fly. If I really believe in judgment, and I think the Bible is very clear on that fact, if I'm not sharing with those who according to the Bible, will come under that judgment. I either don't really believe what God has said about judgment or I don't really care about them. This is sobering. And I think this is one of the times where we really, where the truth of God's word really is where the rubber meets the road. And so when we read about judgment, we not only think about how we ourselves are called to repent and faith in Christ to escape that judgment, but when we read about judgment, it must also cause us to be compassionate for others and to share with them repentance and faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the book of Micah that you would use it to transform us to grow in holiness and to be more like Jesus. God, that as we see your 
glory and power pictured that we would repent of a small view of you and that we would repent of a small view of our sin, that today we would understand your glory and the depths of our sin better because of your word and that it would lead us to faith and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. God, that in reading about the judgment that comes upon sin, that we would be compelled to reach out to a dying and lost world which apart from Jesus is under that same judgment. That you would use this to give us compassion for others and pity and love for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.